speaking of men, after we had a woman Doctor Who, they just recently cast a new man Doctor Who, uh, but he's black <gasps> this time. What? <laughs> and I'm curious if they'll make him LGBTQIA+. Oh, really? In some form or another, because the guy who's playing him is Shuti Gatwa, who uh, is from Sex Education, and he plays a gay character in that show. And I'm, I don't know if he's actually gay in real life or LGBTQIA+, in real life. How did the Brits take it? I don't know how the feedback has gone, but he's replacing Jodie Whittaker, who's the first woman doctor. Yeah, I've heard more complaints about the showrunner from the last couple installments rather than the actors and actresses. Yeah, that makes sense. Something about just uh, really poor writing quality. Oh, uh, that's sad. Yeah. I honestly, I haven't watched any of Whitaker's seasons and I haven't watched the last two Peter Capaldi seasons. So. I want to watch Peter Capaldi. I just never got around to doing it. I watched all of everything up to the first season of Capaldi and then I stopped, so... Did but you, watch, I, you watch all the old doctors too from the 60s and 70s? No, no, I watched, you know, from <laughs> Eccleston. Eccleston. I love on. that man. Yeah, it's great. He was my first doctor. Not like my physician, but he was my first Doctor Who. He was mine as well. I think anyone who got back into Doctor Who when it restarted. The modern Who? Eccleston or Tennant was their, probably their first doctor. Tenet. But Tennant is returning for an episode. As well. Is he returning as I think so, his yeah. character? Oh, that's cool. Not like a just a cheeky little cameo. That's fun. Yeah. It's a very storied past institution, that production. Yeah. Doctor Who. Right. You know, he's like he's a British hero. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> he's a British hero. He's, he's a, <laughs> An intergalactic. For the Queen. That's his his te- <laughs> That's what he always says, right? For Queen and Country. <laughs> it's stupid. Yeah, good for them, though. You know, casting. I'm excited because I really like that guy, and I think he'll be really charismatic and fun, and I'm really pumped to see you what like he does. You like him in Sex Ed? Oh, yeah. He's, like, one of my favorite characters. I think, I'm, I hope that, I'm hoping for, like, sort of a return of sort of, like, how the Matt Smith seasons felt. Just, like, a lot of fun and very likable. Everybody quality. likes Matt Smith. Yeah, I think everyone is going to like Shutigawa as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, talking about English men. Talking and- about Brits. Talking about Brits. Tea's on the kettle, love. Biscuits <laughs> in the cupboard. Don't track the mud in. <laughs> yeah. I always forget Alex Garland is British. Brit. And I don't know why. There's really no reason that I guess. Yeah, I think he's a pretty private person. I guess it's because he's been working in Hollywood for as long as he has. I think we did a bit of an Alex Garland rundown on uh, the devs cast. Yeah. Huge. De- so what are we doing today? Today we're talking about men. Not um, the disambiguation or the amb- the ambiguation. Not just men. We're talking about <laughs> Alex Garland's new film with A24. Yep. Men. Men. Uh, much more of a horror picture than his previous science fiction uh, outings. Yeah. Yep. We're talking about men. And this is Alex Garland, who we talked about on the Devs podcast, which was a more recent episode for us. Yeah. So if you want to hear a little bit more about who Alex is or his past or some of his motivations, you could refer to that cast. Um, but yeah, he is one of Gabe's favorite uh, auteurs, I would say, working yeah. today. For and sure. he has he has most recently, I've been following him for a while, but has most recently become one of mine because of Devs. Again, we talk about that on that podcast. But So he just put out a new film. Because Devs came out back in March 2019. 2020. March 2020. 2020. March 2020. 2020. Yeah. And so he put out a new film 
in not a series, but you know, cause he's more of a filmmaker. Uh, he put out a new film that just came out today, actually today yeah. of all days, May 20th, 2022, a COVID production, I think. Yeah. In fact, I don't know if, where the inception of this idea came from, but it wouldn't surprise me if he had something else brewing and then COVID happened and he was like, what can I do with like uh, just a couple actors and a remote location? Because we know there are a few iconic parts of an Alex Garland production and one of those is a remote location, which is perfect for COVID because you can't shoot with a lot of people. Yep. And he's also very selective with, I think, his casting choices. I think they're on point here as well. Yeah, I did notice it was interesting. He he's worked with Sonoya Mizuno, I think, every every production since Ex Machina, and she was actually in this film. She had a cameo as the nine one one operator or whatever oh. that is in Britain. It's not nine one one, but nine nine nine. Yeah, she was the emergency responder. Yeah, on the phone. Yeah, but yeah, he cast in this film Jesse Buckley as the lead. Back at it again. Our with the Buck Vans. Our heroine. And opposite her was Rory Kinnear, who... Uh, Greg Kinnear's brother. <laughs> is he really? I have no idea. I don't think he is. Isn't Greg Kinnear American? Yeah. And Rory Kinnear is very British. <laughs> Super English. But he's legendary. He, ever, You might know him from many films. He was recently in Bond, and he was uh, in Penny Dreadful as uh, John Clare. He was like... He's an amazing actor, honestly. The thing I most recognized him from was Black Mirror episode where he has yeah. to he has to that pilot, that unforgettable first episode. He has to have sex with a pig. Yeah, incredible start for a legendary series, which honestly was the least technologically focused episode of the show, but it was great. Yeah, uh, Roy Kinnear and Jesse Buckley are basically the whole film, and then there's a couple other minor members who fill out this countryside yeah this english countryside can you briefly summarize the film yeah can you do it in a few sentences yeah spoilers by the way spoilers uh full spoilers from here on plot wise this is garland's probably simplest film to date it's pretty straightforward uh at least until the end um if you if you get rid of all the subtext yeah 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 this film, plot wise. It, yeah, that's why I said plot wise because yeah, it's a very. I'm comp- just making it clear. It's an elaborate, uh, thematically speaking, <laughs> film. But plot wise, here's what happens: Jesse Buckley's husband kills himself uh, because, well, it's not exactly clear what caused her to want to separate and divorce him. But he, she makes that her intention, and he threatens to kill himself, which he ends up doing after a, a scuffle that got physical. And then she, in order to heal and kind of recover emotionally, goes out to the, she goes out to the English countryside in a small, like a cottage for a couple weeks. And then the film takes place, which is uh, strange things start to occur, to occur. (laughs) Strange things start to happen. (laughs) You can say occur, it's fine. And uh, what's clear to the audience and not clear to Jesse Buckley is that all these characters are played by the same person. That's Rory Kinnear. Yeah. Including a little boy. He plays like seven or eight different men yeah. uh, and a boy in yeah. this English countryside. Kind of like a like a teenage boy, though. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe 14 or 15. Yeah. And things start to get out of hand <laughs> pretty quickly. And it the third act is uh, a symbolic deconstruction of some pretty heavy themes <laughs> that we can... It's literally a deconstruction. Yeah. 
and figuratively. Well, just plot-wise, say what happens. There, there's this creature. It oh, is, yeah. Essentially, is this creature that is shape-shifting. If we're to take it at face value, well, all you know is that she's being uh, pursued. She's being... Uh, by a monster. Haunted slash stalked by some kind of entity. Yeah, this, this, a naked man. This forest creature that is takes the guise of a person. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then somehow it's like construed that it's shape-shifting and it's somehow like disappearing and reappearing. It's supernatural, to say the least. And uh, by the end, it ends up confronting her very directly. um, And just the shit hits the fan. It seems to want to spread its seed, so to speak, but more so in like a a plant kind of way where it's it's blowing pollen toward her. Yeah, but blows the seeds and then he does it seems to have some sort of like sexual undertone or like desire to get inside of her private parts an inclination yeah (laughs) um and then it ends up kind of chasing her in her car after she tries to get away and then it crashes and then we get to the final part of the film which is where (laughs) it crawls toward her and births another creature out of what can only be interpreted as some sort of vagina underneath where the penis is <laughs> and then out of that creature oh. it that is impregnated and births another creature it's really difficult to imagine and, and these creatures are sort of the past iterations of the men that have been haunting her yes in this place or this town the town and then full. that creature crawls into the house and births another creature and then that one births. It happens four or five times. You know, this is how many times this happened. Then that one births her husband who uh, <laughs> committed suicide. And then, then that creature is not pregnant any longer and comes over onto the couch. And they sit down and have a brief bout of dialogue. And she asks, what do you want from me? And he says, I just wanted your love or something. And then the movie ends. We just that, lost our last listener. That... <laughs> That is that is what happens, though. Okay, face value, that's what happens. Yeah. So imagine watching this, not knowing anything, and then you are me in the theater. All right, so let's talk about this, because you know way more about it than I do. And you said this is some sort of entity from, like, a Celtic origin? Let's, yeah. Okay, the, now, now talk about it. It's Celtic legend, a symbolic figure known as the Green Man. What is that? Who is it's, that? It's just some old... Folklore. How, uh, how old are we talking? Oh, like gosh. 800s? The, just the word Celtic. 1200s? Uh, <laughs> like before Christ or after Christ? Sculpture of Green Man uh, in modern Iraq from the 2nd century. Oh, wow. That's really old. Yeah. I mean, we're talking... BC. <laughs> no, seriously. Potentially. I don't know. What's funny about Is it... Is this ha- like similar to like what the Green Knight was? No. No, it's different? Okay. Yeah. All right, well, that talk- was all just Arthurian. Lore. Okay, so talk more. What who? What is the well, Green Knight? What's interesting? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because the Green Knight symbolism. There's a bit of a influence. I mean, not influence, but uh, it's worth noting because of what green represents, right? And it is uh, for the Green Man for our folklore here for today's podcast. It's about <laughs> birth and rebirth. Okay. Uh, and that natural process. Mm-hmm. Um. And that plays pretty directly. I actually didn't know that part about it. It plays pretty directly into the plot of this film and then the symbolic uh, imagery and the metaphor that is this film. So there are layers of illusions and like, is it is uh, the green, allegory here? Is the green man? Yeah, but like going back to like the history of this creature, is the green man sort of like something that haunts the woods? Like, is it like a, like a 
you know, well, creature from the Black Lagoon kind I'm, of thing. I think or? it's more. Is it is a, it almost like a Greco-Roman god, where like it's like the god of spreading seed, or like what what is you know what is the Green Man? What is it? What does it represent? I think it doesn't. There's nothing specific. I think it represents different things for different people, and it's it's represented in in many different cultures. What's interesting is its connection, oftentimes with ecclesiastical mm. infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That's why we see it actually also in the film. Uh, it's carved into the church of all things. Yeah, into the, so, into a pew or it's, an altar. It's not just like a pagan at thing. The church. Yeah. It, it means many things to many people. It's a very um, not ambiguous, but like it's one of those like kind of just general god entities. You know, that's like like, like an icon. Yeah, like an iconography. It's, yeah, exactly that. So it's okay. not like something specific. You know. So okay, it, but you're saying it often represents like birth and rebirth. Yeah, or at least that's the way it was played in this film. I think okay. Alex Garland was using it as this representation of yeah. rebirth, both you know, literally and figuratively in this film. <laughs> and you you broke it down quite beautifully because I was struggling to f- find the metaphor. I, I, having done no research on it, was trying to process it. And you're like, oh, it's about... Yeah, if you want to just make it quite a reduction yeah. uh, and dis- distill it into a single line, it would be generational toxic masculinity or generational trauma specifically uh, through the lens of a woman, but it's about men. I mean, as is, it's the title of the film. Alex Garland is notorious as you could hear. We talk about on the Doves cast is notorious for like having a title of his work of his film or series that has like kind of a double meaning. It's both about that subject matter that the title alludes to, but it's also has this subtext or this allegory about, you know, what that could actually mean on a more metaphorical level. Yeah, he loves his titles. So it's not only about the the physical men that are, like, haunting Jesse Buckley in this film, but it's about, like, like Gabe just said, sort of this generational toxic masculinity and the idea that, you know, especially that's become a lot more palpable to our culture as of late, like, with, like, the Me Too movement and post-Me Too or, I mean, we're still in it, kind of. But. Yeah, it's a timeless topic, but yeah. it's the modern, uh, you know. It's very on top of the on top of the mind these days. I would yeah. say it's it's at the forefront of uh, popular consciousness. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I feel like not just with this, but like with something like the morning show, the Apple TV show. A lot of artists, filmmakers, creators are kind of tackling this topic head on these days, and. I feel like this is Garland's version of that. Yeah, it's his own little treatise, his expressionistic take mm-hmm. on this very real dynamic that transcends culture, you know, and time. Like we said, this is just the human way, and it's you know, like we said, the the generational aspect of it of of fathers passing these qualities onto their sons, these unfortunate character traits, you know. Yeah, and and so in the film, the way that plays out is it starts uh, for our heroine Jesse Buckley. Yeah, I can't believe I... Oh, Harper. Oh, Harper, yeah. Uh, something, Harper something. We'll call her Harper. Harper Buckley. She uh, runs into that with her husband, who well, you can tell very quickly that he is un- <laughs> he's kind of deranged because he threatens to kill himself when she wants to... Break up with him. Or separate and divorce. Yeah. They might have already been separated, but she wants to divorce him because of, like I said, there's something unclear that happened in the last... Uh, in recent history that made her want to do this. And he he does it like with 
the intent of being manipulative to keep her close. Well, there's that's why else would you threaten to kill yourself? Well, some people I feel like would be like, I'm going to kill myself because like I'm upset. But he he's like, I'm going to kill myself so that you feel guilty and yeah. carry this around with you. Yeah, and he, he says it pretty much that verbatim. Yeah. And so that he does, basically. Well, uh, it's, she said it was sort of unclear whether he slipped trying to get back down or whether he actually killed himself. That's fair. Yeah. But... That's that's what she said. After he dies, regardless of its intent... I want, it, I want to say really quick, when he dies, and this is something I love about Alex Garland... He dies in this very specific way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where, and this like Alex Garland always has something, like some something really oddly specific. Attention to detail. A very attentive to detail that ends up usually coming back to play again later in the film or the series. And it's just so freaking brilliant. Basically, he, he falls on the cement outside and she sees him and he... He's pierced kind of through the wrist, almost like it, it, like a like a spike on a fence went through his forearm and then went all the way up to the bottom of his hand where his wrist is, sort of like a Christ figure. And then he had his right leg on the bottom near his ankle was broken off, and his his leg was like off, and so he is impaled on his left arm, mm-hmm. and then he had his ankle on his right, and then foot broken off. Which, which again, is it was like a really strange way, but it also seemed very realistic and and like palpable, you know. Yeah. And that came into play later because the same thing happens to the monster when Jesse is trying to get away from him. She puts a knife through his forearm, and the creature in this really horrifying scene, reaching his arm through um, the mail opening in the door, pulls his arm out cutting his arm like right down the middle through his middle finger and his ring finger out of the mail slot slit slot and, and the knife then falls, but then his arm for the, the creature's arm for the rest of the time is like split in two. And, and it, it obviously was a, a throwback or, or it's supposed to be an allegory for what happened to her husband. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. And yeah. It's, it's so cool that Alex Garland did that. Yeah. It's it, also worth noting is there's a third wound, I think, that is implied to uh, be just as important, which is a head wound. And I think that's why she was brandishing the axe at the end. He clearly, when he falls from the building, that's how he dies. He jumps off a building or falls off a building. He also wounds his head and like he gashed it on the same yeah, spikes. Yeah. So I think the implication of the end, one of the many, is that she's about to kill him uh, in his monstrous, you know, visage his form uh by uh striking him on the head with the axe to finish the uh the the connection you Mm -hmm. know the rhyming Mm -hmm. i think that's the intention there Hmm. um because it very clearly yeah it's really smart the last part of that scene is her like she's like feeling the edge of the axe yeah and and it kind of pans up and shows them sitting there. i didn't catch that but i think you're right um, anyway, you were saying... Yeah, so her husband, James, sets off this series of events, uh, literally and figuratively, and then, so the monster comes to represent... This is the main conceit of the film. Rory Kinney are playing all these different men, characters, because they all represent different, basically, I think... This is my take, again, negative qualities. And so there's the literal level of what's happening, which is 
it's complicated because you have the green man who is embodying all these characters and it's unclear whether or not he actually literally is all these characters on a surface level. Very unclear. But you also have Jesse Buckley as Harper, who is an unreliable narrator, and you're not even sure what's actually happening over the course of the days that she's staying at this cabin in this cottage. Yes. Um, But on like the more thematic, symbolic, metaphorical level, these men all look the same because they represent the same thing to her. There's this looming threat, I think is what I'm trying to say, Uh, both uh, as physical danger because she's in a strange place and she doesn't know what's happening, but also they represent those qualities of the film, which is, you know, those toxic masculinity qualities, right? Yeah. Um, They all have varying degrees of misogyny. Yeah, I think the focal point of that is is the some of them are like really subtle like yeah. in like and like just like a, a way of thinking about like how a man can do something and a woman can't or shouldn't do something in yeah. the same way that a man could. Other others are more a lot more toxic where it's like Yeah. You know, I'm glad you mentioned subtlety because sometimes it is uh but sometimes it's very on the nose and intentionally so. It's like, almost like you see a, like a really feral dude snarling like that kind of like feral manhood like in the corner like he's gonna like rape her or something as soon as she walks out of the bar you know yeah that kind of thing those those bar patrons who are just like looking at her it's almost like they're just waiting to pounce on her yeah in a way that you would hear about (laughs) like in like the big bad wolf and like a fairy tale or something you know yeah that kind of thing and then also the vicar though who the priest is the priest character that Rory Kinnear plays is kind of like I, he comes to represent and he kind of um, is the character that speaks the themes of the film out uh, literally speaks them out loud towards the end of the film and his confrontation with Harper after the monster has been taking the shapes of different men he takes the form of the vicar and confronts Harper in her own bathroom as she's being chased through the house and he after quoting some Greek mythology uh, he starts talking about what women mean to him. And this this is kind of uh, one of those points of the film where it, it really make it starts to make sense like what it's what this movie's trying to do because sometimes it's pretty uh, obtuse. But it's, in modern vernacular, we call it like the incel, right? It's this socially inept kind of man who doesn't know how to interact with women. And so this, this vicar, this priest talks to Harper about this power and control that she has over him just by virtue of like existing, by being a woman, because he has this uncontrollable sex drive. Uh, he's, he's a very horny individual uh, and just a very yeah. bad dude. And so that's kind of like the takeaway, I guess, if there is one. It's this film being a deconstruction of the incel. I guess. I don't know. It's weird. I'm still processing it all myself, but that generational toxic masculinity often rears its head as that that sexually violent and perverse mm-hmm. kind of display of misogyny. Yeah. And so the priest is literally embodying that. And it, it's, like we said, it's it's pretty on the nose. And even in the first scene, or in the scene with, with their first encounter, like you think he might be an okay version of... Kinnear and then he puts his hand on her leg yeah and she I I found also very interesting she like doesn't think twice about it she thinks it it almost seems like almost like normal for her she's just like yeah let's keep talking well she doesn't she she doesn't flinch at all yeah but she does that there's this look on her face that almost seems like she's like hmm but yes but 
but she keeps sitting there. She doesn't get up and run or anything like that. And I thought that that was interesting because it almost seems like here's this woman who's living in a world where all these men are like, she's used to being treated, you know, with a misogynistic undertone and like, as are probably most women and they kind of have to accept it sometimes and like, just move on when, when clearly that's sort of a red flag and that speaks volumes to like what is actually going on underneath the surface, you know? That's an interesting perspective. My initial take from that scene is that it was because he was clergy and that she had this kind of uh, implicit trust, you know. She should run even faster. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's like when you're watching a horror movie and the, you think to yourself as the audience, like, oh, this is bad. You should get out of here. You know, when you're watching a movie with a priest, you're like, oh, this <laughs> he's probably not a good guy. And it turns out in this film, he clearly wasn't. So yeah. uh, anyway, yeah, like you said, the end of the film... Uh, really the whole metaphor comes to a head, uh, literally, I mean, like no pun intended, it comes to a head and we see, we see the cyclical, (laughs) starting with the green man, the cyclical birth and Uh rebirth of Mm -hmm. all the, or a handful of the characters that we've come to know in this, uh, little quaint little English country town, uh, finishing in her husband. And what's interesting about the whole the beginning of this sequence where the green man confronts her at the end and blowing the seeds is that like right at that point she becomes somewhere around there she becomes like kind of entranced yeah entranced and in my mind she's like she begins to understand what's happening right like what the green man is as it is in appearing to her you know like what's happening yeah starts to become clear both to her and to the audience yeah and so she, at that point, is just kind of like a spectator for the for the climax of the film, the last 20 minutes, as she's watching. And she has this incredible, like, glazed-over look. Like, her face, to me, just screams, like, I'm so over this. Like, I'm exhausted emotionally and physically uh, after everything that's been happening from my ex-husband's death into this nightmare yeah. of... Uh, to me, her face screamed... It, it's funny. It almost screamed the the opposite, like an unknowing, like as if, yeah, she might have began to put the the puzzle pieces together at that point. But she, at that point, it became very clear that this may all be taking place with inside of her head. It may all be a metaphor, so to speak, because Garland also likes to play with kind of like time dilation, right? Where like something you're seeing happens, but it almost happens like in the past, if that makes sense. So she runs out to the car, drives away, then it cuts back to her still in the house, you know? And it's all very metaphorical, but like we're saying, it's very unclear, but the one thing that is clear, that's like undoubtedly clear is like what Gabe was saying about the the generational passing down of toxic masculinity. Yeah. Do, well, you, do you see what I'm saying though? No, I, I would agree. At first it was the confusion because... Yeah. But I think by the time like we're a couple uh, <laughs> rebirths in... <laughs> she's much more like like confident at yeah. that point. Yeah. Well, it's not just co- but it's it's this specific it's like an kind acceptance, of acceptance. Yeah, it is it is it is those things, but it's also it to me it was like exhaustion because it was like and actually I this is these are things I was like putting together during the credits and walking out, but my very first initial take like what this scene represented was exhaustion in the perspective that this was like her husband like going around in circles trying to just keep their relationship together and it was very psychotic you know Mm -hmm. like 
it's this masculine habit of like the action or the sin and then the reaction or the the apology, right? And this circular thing that happens where there's like no sense of of uh, self-awareness or recognition. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So when I first saw the death, the birthing scene, the cyclical birthing scene, I was like, oh, this just means, this is like indicative of the husband's like mm-hmm. complete um, lack of self-awareness doing these things and then he comes back begging for forgiveness and then he's like trying to save the marriage and then he like, maybe it works for a while and then it goes back. And this is, maybe he's just speaking to me on a personal level because of all the relationships that I've witnessed, uh, you know, in my own experience where it's this thing that's just barely moving along, this thing that's just barely working. But I think afterwards, what it kind of solidified to me was just that more general sense of the generational passing down of those mm qualities that that it came to be well you know like and and then it, how it ends in literally her husband like you said where he says you know look at what you did all i wanted was your love and she's just like she's so over it at that point yeah it was such a fantastic honestly carried by the performance yeah. of jesse buckley and yeah rory kinnear i think that's really profound and um it's a good take it's a good takeaway from that film I also really like the metaphor of the apples falling from the tree. Um, I looked at it similarly to how he was spreading the seed of the dandelion, like the seeds from the seed of the the tree is the fruit. So the fruits falling in the ground as like, it's almost like trying to spread, you know, that seed to the, I think the illusion is even better. Yeah. yeah. The idea of Adam and Eve in the garden, like it was because again, symbolized represented best by the vicar like he is he's unable to control his impulses and so for him harper is eve harper is the one who like brings sin into the garden for him and it's such a ridiculous premise because like for him it removes all sense of responsibility all sense of personal accountability yeah, right yeah but as a lot of men do for in that those circumstances they yeah. justify it in that way for these for men yeah. the woman is just like there and existing right. <laughs> as like as Trying to, trying, to, trying to get away from everything. Yeah, it's like it's somehow their fault yeah. because they're not able to control their impulses. <laughs> That's very true. And so the whole Adam and Eve illusion is like perfect there because Adam in the Bible was like seduced by Eve who was seduced by the serpent. And so to take that into like the incel mindset, right? It's like, oh, these women, they're trying to like, you know, they're feminine wiles, blah, 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 blah. Well, you also interpreted the apples falling from the tree in another way, which I also loved. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, part of the generational aspect, as we repeat these words over and over for 20 minutes in your ears. <laughs> Generation. There's that, you know, the saying of the apple not falling far from the tree. So yeah. there there are so many things like that in this film, which is why I think it'll only get better on a rewatch when sure. you're picking apart these little, like, cheeky Garland references, you know? It is very cheeky. I think but I think Alex Garland is the kind of person who's smart enough to be cheeky like that. Yeah, that's why I don't think of these films as pretentious when I think yeah. there are a lot of people like this movie is yes. not for everyone. 100%. But I no, the I pretentious feel, thing. The I pretentious feel like thing. a lot of people might watch this and say, "Ugh, you yeah, know, that was yeah. that was pretentious." I was like, it's there's not, so much not, to unpack it's, here. It's not a Tarantino film. It's not pretentious in that way. Like this is Alex Garland's works. They're almost like I don't know how to describe it. I think in the end, when we look at Alex Garland's collection of work, we'll be able to like look at them as like chapters of like, like 
a biography in a way like because he's so he's so full of knowledge and he's an avid reader and like he's so knowledgeable of of the subject matter that he's discussing yeah every story he, he writes can, he can just he can just write in you know a couple lines of poetry and a soliloquy in the end and and it totally works yeah you know and Cause, well that because it's all in service and to... it's not but it's not like you said it's not pretentious because yeah. of that Everything works. Yeah. It, it's all in service to some higher, like there's a purpose and there's yeah. a message. It's yes. And every time exactly. you write something, yeah, whatever shape it takes, uh, even if it's a novel, it's it's this deep exploration of the human psyche. And there's always a different uh, beast to tackle. And like we said earlier too, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a more elaborate, complicated metaphor. Yeah. But it's always done with um, such a deft hand mm-hmm. and. It's always in service to the thing, like yeah. to the metaphor itself. Now, yeah. I, I mean, that is to say it's not going to be for everyone because these... Correct. These, this very, movie is not for everyone. And it's the I last... Would, I would actually not recommend it to like half of our listeners. It's the last Garland film I would recommend. Yeah. Uh, Particularly because you you might find it interesting for the first uh, half hour to 40 minutes, and then you will want to walk out of the theater. Yeah. And then you'll definitely want to walk out in the last 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. It's it's a really interesting film from a pacing perspective too. Yeah. Because like the I was waiting for like the first act to close so I could be like, "Oh, here's the second act." And then it felt it felt kind of like it was like a it was split into two halves almost. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. I think the I looked at the clock like right in the middle and it was when she walks into the bar because everything from that point on happens in like I, an hour or I was soon. thinking the second half started after the montage of going into the eye of the deer and then everything you see that like crazy montage of was that before the bar yeah yeah that might have been it but I think that was where the split happened. yeah the first half is kind of slow and then it just accelerates into that cr- insane finale which again is insane and it's very graphic i think he spent time i mean you you call it slow i think you and i both wouldn't call it slow but you're saying slow for for people that might think it's slow i never use the word slow as uh as a pejorative right (laughs) it's always slow to me is like is good (laughs) i will watch a half hour of nick offerman drinking whiskey by a fire yeah in an uncut half hour I'll watch that. Well, even though that, I, even yeah. that is not slow to me. So, and, and I will say, well, I love the body horror and the gore. <laughs> My favorite part of this film is when Jesse Buckley is just existing in nature. That's what I was going to say. I yeah. think I think Garland spent a lot of time showing us that to show us kind of like the actual desire of this person, this woman, yeah. is to to get away and and just experience the beauty and the nature around her. That was her intention. And I feel like it was almost his way of saying that like a lot of women just want to exist like as an individual, as a person and just experience, you know, the beauty around them. And then, and then something comes in the way to just, just rip them out of that, you know? And like a lot of times that happens in life and you see that happen over and over and you hear these women that have these stories, you know, these, these crazy traumatic stories because some man got involved and just fucked it all up for them, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I liked that Garland spent a lot of time doing that. Cause I think even that in of itself was a metaphor, just the time that he spent the, you know, the very depth of fieldy shots of just like her walking through the forest and the music there was really pretty. And 
Yeah. Her, her taking it in, walking up to the old house in the middle of the countryside. Like it, you know, she was, she was marveling at everything. It reminded me honestly, a lot of, cause I have two daughters, like how my daughters take in new experiences and new places. It's, there's such an innocence and like a, a, a majesty, you know, everything is just like, everything's so full of wonder to them. Yeah. And so I, I and I hate to think of like some idiot man is just trying to get his rocks <laughs> off yeah. coming in and destroying that innocence and that beauty. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And that's kind of how I viewed that. Like how I viewed Jesse Buckley's character in this. Yeah. It's all true. All of it. All of it. Yeah. I love the way that he and his longtime cinematographer collaborator, Rob Hardy shoot nature. It's just, it's gorgeous. And the colors in this film are really important too. the green versus mm-hmm. the red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. Not, we haven't really, really even touched on like some of the, in terms of set pro- and uh, set design and production, there's a lot of uh, visual imagery in this film mm-hmm. that represents a lot, or it, it like harkens back to those uh, important themes. Like yeah. even the tunnel itself, which is a pretty integral set piece, which kind of uh, begins to set the tone for the film moving forward in this, it's where like some of the sinister potential starts to come to the surface like the the tunnel as this i don't want to say vaginal on the podcast but because phallic refers to the penis you can the female reproductive organs are very important uh visual imagery for this film not like you don't like see you know that there's this you well you see like there's the sculpture and then there is the more I look back on it, just the film is filled with imagery. Everything from the tunnel to the deer's eye to the mail slot. It's all, uh, it's like, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's all meant to evoke the the imagery um, and the ideas in the film. And I think that's why I think it'll only get more rewarding on a second watch is because you'll start to, if you approach the film in that way, you're like looking for those things. I think Alex Garland is very intentional with making imagery. every every uh, set piece, every scene have things that are like subconsciously building towards this uh, this idea sure. that comes to fruition in the final yeah. act. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Yeah, and also... The music was really good. Yeah, Garland for me is always king of tone. He's right up there with like the best of them for me. And uh, I want to say thank you to Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow for once again, once again, another uh, phenomenal piece of orchestration. The the music in an Alex Garland picture is always such an important part of establishing the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, And they did it again. They love using voice and those choral Uh influences. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so wonderfully unnerving like it it it's so uh like it's not like a like a, i was trying to describe this and it's like horror films and jump scares often rely on sound cues to uh amplify the scare you know yes but in garland films you might get a, like a taste of that but it's usually the score will come in very soft and mm-hmm. it'll just kind of lay over the film or lay over the scene rather as just that layer of the uh, like it's just there to support the scene. It's not like trying to the suspense rises shock you. Yeah, I love it. So well, here is a track. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. The film is bookended by Leslie Duncan's uh, love song. I think they use Elton John's version at the end, but Alex Garland loves to do that too. He's, he's very fond of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He did Helplessly Hoping in Annihilation, and then he had Guinevere right. and Devs. Yeah. In this film, we had Love Song, which is it sounds like it's a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, but it thematically and the sound of it, I think it, it's such a good button for this movie. So we'll play it here. This has been TCP. This is TCP. I have to say may well be simple but they're true until you give your love there's nothing more that we can do love is the opening door Love is what we came here for No one could offer you more Do you know what I mean? Have your eyes really seen? You say it's very hard to leave behind the life we knew But there's no other way And now it's really up to you Love is the key we must turn Truth is the flame we must burn Freedom, the lesson we must learn Do you know what I mean? Have your eyes really seen? Do you know what I mean? Have your eyes really seen?